it's a huge, huge honour to be here today and to give the Geoffrey Harrison lecture. Of course, it's terribly sad that Jeff has passed away, but I'm so pleased that his dear wife, Elizabeth, uh, could join us. So, Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming. As many people in this room will know, Jeff had a deep and passionate commitment to the human sciences. He was hugely influential in establishing the human sciences undergraduate's degree in Oxford. And the degree, as Nick has indicated, attempted right from the very beginning to bring together the biological and the social sciences with the intention of developing biosocial perspectives which would enable some of the major issues of the day to be tackled more effectively. Now, as a second-year human sciences undergraduate in the early 1980s, I remember listening with a certain degree of awe to Jeff's wonderful lectures. He used to walk up and down without notes or flip charts, talking about different aspects of the human sciences. And I, like many others, quickly became persuaded of the importance of doing biosocial research. And I set my heart on going to Sudan to give it a go. Of course, I knew nothing of the methodological or the theoretical or the practical issues that lay ahead. So I applied for a travel grant to my college, LMH, to go to Sudan to study a tropical disease with a long-sounding name called schistosomiasis. I was excited. Until that is, I bumped into Jeff in the car park of 58 Banbury Road. He told me in no uncertain terms that I did not know enough. And it was inconceivable that I could do anything very much in the time available. I was simply wasting my time. But human scientists are made of sterner stuff. So unsurprisingly then, I decided to go anyway. And a few months later, we met again in the car park of 58 Banbury Road. And he came up to me and raised his eyebrow and said in his wry, ironic kind of way, I hear you didn't listen to a word I said. We need to talk. Come and see me in my office tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. So I walked into his office the next day, a little bit apprehensive, I might add, and I was somewhat astonished to hear him say, I've been thinking about your trip to Sudan. I think you should develop your ideas into a PhD and do it here in the department. And so began a biosocial journey. It's not been a very smooth one, full of ups and downs. But I've never been more convinced, actually, of the need to develop biosocial perspectives on the contemporary issues facing mankind. So my focus today is on global health, and I want to look at two contrasting diseases. One, a chronic parasitic disease, schistosomiasis, and the other, an acute viral hemorrhagic fever, Ebola. And I think it will quickly become apparent that there are very many methodological, social, and political challenges to doing biosocial research. But nevertheless, it is actually possible to overcome at least some of them, and to do so in such a way as to make a positive contribution to resolving what are some very complex global health problems.
So let me start with some of the work I did on schistosomiasis in Sudan in the 1980s. I was at the time one of Jeff's PhD students in the Department of Biological Anthropology. Schistosomiasis, which is commonly referred to as Bilharzia, is a waterborne parasitic disease and it's now often referred to as a neglected tropical disease or an NTD. It's caused by infection with schistosomes and they're two particular species which dominate in, in sub-Saharan Africa, Schistosoma mansoni and Schistosoma hematobium. Both species have a very complicated life cycle involving an aquatic snail intermediate host, a human definitive host, and their mutual presence in a common environment where transmission occurs, typically the slow-moving water of lakes and rivers. As you can see from this slide, it can cause significant swelling of the abdomen, and in a small number of cases, infection with schistosomes can give rise to a condition called ascites, which involves the vomiting of blood and can lead to death. However, there was a surprising conjecture about the condition. Clinicians, physiologists and epidemiologists all had rather different views about the relationship between infection with schistosomes, disability and disease. As a result, they were somewhat divided in their view about whether or not schistosomiasis should be viewed as a global public health problem. Enter a young anthropologist with an MRC studentship and a fieldwork grant from the RAI. I wanted to move beyond the biomedical framing of schistosomiasis as a disease and develop a perspective which accounted for the social and economic context in which infection occurred uh, and thereby enable a more fine-grained and nuanced approach to how chronic tropical infections affect people's day-to-day -day lives. Perhaps then I thought it would be possible to resolve that question of whether schistosomiasis should be seen as a major public health problem. <coughs> so in January 1985, I flew to Sudan, and my fieldwork involved living in a small village in the Gazira-Managal irrigation scheme for the best part of 18 months. This cartoon is right up there in the top. As you can see, the village lies between the Blue and the White Nile, and it took about eight hours by multiple trucks to reach the capital. It's a very, very arid area. And when the rains come, everything turns to mud. And it looks rather different. So the village is located by a canal, characterized by slow-moving water, almost stagnant for much of the year, with all water for domestic and agricultural use Coming directly from the canal and pit latrines not being available, it was maybe not surprising that the, both the prevalence and intensity of infection was very high. Incidentally, the canal was part of a network of um, canals which were built during the time of the Anglo-Egyptian condominium, primarily to irrigate fields and grow cheap cotton for the declining Lancashire cotton industry. But sadly, no one foresaw the problems that would arise by establishing such an irrigation system. 
malaria, schistosomiasis and diarrheal diseases were and remain endemic in the region. So here I lived for 18 months uh, with an extended family of 16. I learned to speak colloquial Sudanese Arabic and, as Nick indicated, combined the collection of biomedical data and continuous observational data with participant observation. Among other things, I worked with a group of women who were heavily infected with Schistosoma mansoni and engaged in agricultural work. And then I paired them with women who were similar in all other respects, other than their infective status. So a heavily infected 24-year-old married woman with three children and no primary school education was paired with a woman who was also 24 and married and had three children, but was free from infection. All of which sounds much neater and easier than it actually was. Because to determine whether or not someone is free from infection, it's often necessary to analyse three, even five, consecutive stool samples. And as you can imagine, knocking on people's doors and asking for yet another sample was not always that straightforward. But having identified a group of women to work with, I then observed each woman in each pair for two consecutive days, noting the nature and extent of activities undertaken in the domestic and the agricultural sphere. I was particularly interested to discover whether or not women had the necessary energy to complete day-to-day -day subsistence activities and how their patterns of work related to perceptions of health and well-being more broadly. So what did I find? Well, schistosomiasis had a differential impact on the day-to-day -day lives of women in this one village. In other words, schistosoma mansoni altered uh, female activities in the agricultural sphere but it seemed to have no particular impact for those working in the domestic sphere. And interestingly, in the agricultural sphere, infected women actually spent less time in the fields in the morning than their uninfected pairs, but they did not pick any less cotton. In other words, they worked harder and faster than the women who were free from infection. But having said that, the majority of infected women didn't return to the fields in the afternoon, whereas their uninfected pairs did. So drawing upon insights from participant observation to interrogate the biomedical and observational data, it became apparent that a crucial factor affecting working patterns was exposure to solar radiation. Women engaged in domestic work, whether infected or uninfected, were almost always working in the shade, whereas those working in the fields had no such protection. In other words, the combination of heat stress and heavy worm burdens proved too much for some women, and this had important economic and social consequences. But the work raised other questions too. Many people had low egg loads, and in spite of spending considerable amounts of time talking to them about their health and well-being and observing them in their day-to-day -day activities, there was no indication that they felt ill. They appeared to be asymptomatic for schistosoma mansoni, which raised some rather awkward questions. If schistosomiasis is not perceived to be a health problem by most local people, does this mean it should 
or it shouldn't be perceived as a public health issue worthy of substantial resources by international agencies. And how do external constructions of schistosomiasis as an exotic tropical disease frame our understanding of global health problems more broadly? Why are less exotic, but probably more troubling infections, eye infections, ear infections, and diarrhea so frequently overlooked? <coughs> the World Health Organization and Tropical Disease Research Unit, which is sort of bedded within it in particular, appeared to be interested in exploring these issues. I can recall being invited to several expert meetings in Geneva in the 1990s where they openly recognised the importance of interrogating or integrating insights emerging from this kind of local-level anthropological fieldwork with clinical and epidemiological data. So this work was, of course, profoundly shaped by Jeff's commitment in exploring ways to combine insights from the social and biological sciences. And it took place more than 10 years before the publication of Goodman and Leatherman's um, landmark text, Building a Biocultural Synthesis. The book is an edited collection and was published in 1998. And it builds on many of the ideas embedded in the Oxford Human Sciences degree and its follow-on, the master's degree in human biology. It emphasised, among other things, the way in which historical, political, social and economic processes can shape power relations and the impact this can have on local biologies. Local biologies is, of course, a term used by Margaret Locke, who's challenged the notion of homogenous and universal biological knowledge and has argued that understandings of the body and therefore of diseases continuously interact with local environments and that they're indistinct from other aspects of culture. Since then, a plethora of books and articles have been published, all calling for the development of biosocial approaches to health and healing. Useful contributions have been made by Nick Massey-Taylor, Meryl Singer, William Dresler and Dafour, Arthur Kleinman and Paul Farmer, to name but a few. And while it's fair to say that there are now several kinds of biosocial research, they all emphasise the interdisciplinary nature of the work. Indeed, it's a vibrant area in higher education more generally, with the research councils increasingly calling for interdisciplinary biosocial research. As the ESRC have it on their website at the moment, biosocial research brings together expertise from the biological, medical and social sciences. It enhances the depth and breadth of insights drawn from research, thereby improving the positive impacts of research on policy and society. And yet, insights emerging from this work have persistently been set aside by both global health policymakers and donors. Until, that is, the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa in 2014. 
Now, before Tay talking a little about how and why a space has opened up to bring biosocial approaches to the heart of global health, let me first give you an indication of the resistance to insights from this kind of work. Following a period of uh, fieldwork in London on sexual networks and gonorrhea and HIV transmission, I returned in 2005 to my love of parasitic worms. In fact, I started a whole new program of work on schistosomiasis, this time with Tim Allen, an anthropologist from the London School of Economics. Tim is actually a very special anthropologist because he's also my husband. <laughs> Funded by the Gates Foundation and working closely with vector biologists, parasitologists and epidemiologists from a British medical school, as well as colleagues from ministries of health in Uganda and Tanzania, we developed a program of work looking at local understandings and responses to the mass distribution of drugs for the control of schistosomiasis, as well as two other neglected tropical diseases, soil-transmitted helminths, these are worms um, from Ascaris, and lymphatic filariasis. We've worked at multiple sites in Uganda and Tanzania between 2005 and 2011, not only with our MSc and PhD students from the UK, Uganda and Tanzania, but also with our very lovely children, who don't look like that anymore. <laughs> now, I've spoken about some of this work in Oxford before, so I'll cut to the chase, and my apologies if a couple of you have seen the next couple of slides before. First and foremost, I want to point out that our work, this work has been taking place against a rapidly changing landscape in public health. Alongside an increasing commitment by governments to reduce inequality, evidenced in part by the development of the Millennium Development Goals, so-called philanthropic donors, such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, were providing funds on a scale that had never been seen before to address some of the Millennium Development Goals. The six MDG, for example, aimed to combat HIV, AIDS, malaria, and this thing called other diseases. The category of other diseases became a focus of intense lobbying, not only by activists, but also by academics, concerned about, partly concerned by the lack of funds for research on, and um, programmatic work on the control of schistosomiasis and other NTDs. And they were remarkably successful in capturing that term uh, for the neglected tropical diseases. So the other diseases are actually the NTDs. And billions and billions of dollars have been spent now on, on trying to control these NTDs. In fact, according to the Gates Foundation, deworming programs are now the largest public health intervention ever attempted. But sadly, in spite of offering free medicines on an annual basis to populations at risk of infection, drug coverage levels tend to be very low, and they usually fall well below the levels deemed necessary to control, <coughs> never mind eliminate, 
neglected tropical diseases. So the question is then, well, why? And the work that I've been doing with Tim it has become evident that actually there's a whole host of social, political, economic issues that shape the uptake of drugs at a local level. These include, for example, historical experiences with previous public health interventions, frequent population movement across international borders, with some countries having national control programs and others not having any, Fluctuations in food supply, with people offering, often expressing reluctance to consume what are perceived to be strong medicines on an empty stomach. Rumours and conspiracy theories about the rationale underpinning the mass distribution of free drugs um, has also been a major issue, with this sometimes leading to violent outbursts. So this is actually the picture of a school which was virtually demolished uh, when teachers were handing out free drugs to school children. Parents were so angry that they came along because they'd been handed out these drugs without any kind of consent being followed and destroyed the school itself. My poor PhD student had to be uh, rescued by Tanzanian police and taken to a nearby town. So these are major, major issues. Um, arising with some of these deworming programs. There have been other issues too, which sort of helped to maybe shed a little bit of light on the uh, low coverage levels, including uh, misplaced conceptions by donors and governments of community and communal life, where they persistently uh, and mistakenly Imagine that unpaid, poorly trained volunteers can overcome economic constraints and social and political divisions within their village to distribute medicines effectively to everyone living in that locality. So it's a whole array of different kinds of things here at play, uh, which all at these very different research sites were evident in different ways and to different degrees but they all contributed to this very low uptake of drugs. There was, however, one exception. There's a stretch of the River Nile in Moyo and Ajimani districts in northern Uganda where the uptake was sometimes actually rather high and infection levels appeared to be low. And so what's gradually emerged from this vast body of work that we've done over quite a long period of time and, and the work being obviously comparative across field sites, is that a single policy that's formulated in Seattle, Washington, and London, and then legitimized by the World Health Organization in Geneva, cannot be rolled out in a uniform way. Which is a very important finding, but probably to the anthropologists among you, not very surprising. <coughs> What is surprising, though, is the fact that in spite of numerous requests over a 10-year period of collaboration, we never managed to get the key figures to sit down and discuss our findings in relation to the epidemiological data they were collecting. In other words, while we hoped to work in a biosocial way, and in this instance to sit down and discuss how fluctuating patterns of drug coverage albeit rather low, influence transmission patterns for neglected tropical diseases, 
as well as changing perceptions of health and well-being, we never succeeded. Instead, there was a sustained and persistent attempt to set aside and sometimes silence critical debate. So these are some of the strategies that were used in response to our research. Intimidating our field workers. One young Ugandan uh, research assistant, for example, was sort of stopped in his tracks in the village by an official from the Ministry of Health who told him, what on earth are you doing? It's your duty as a Ugandan citizen to say that the drugs are working, even if they're not. And if you carry on helping these whites, we're going to make sure that you never, ever get a job again. Other issues which occurred on a horribly regular basis was a sense of um, pressure, very moral pressure, to set aside the information uh, that we were collecting, not to publish it because it might threaten funding and livelihoods. Uh, further pressure, attempting to restrict access to field sites. A Tanzanian colleague, for example, tried to stop us in the middle of a stretch of field work uh, to returning to that site when she realised what we were finding out. And then there's a the whole issue about selectively presenting certain kinds of data for publication in medical journals and sitting on the findings which are a little bit awkward like the fact that reinfection levels for schistosomiasis in northwestern Uganda are about 85 or 90 percent, in spite of having annual mass drug administration in schools and in local villages. And then most troubling of all, perhaps, uh, is this, misrepresenting critical analysis, our own analysis, in order to discredit it. Several articles have asserted that our work is apparently unethical, grossly negligent, disrespectful to endemic communities, I'm quoting here, and neo-colonial. But what's interesting about these articles is that they never, ever engage with the local, with the information that we're providing. It's just a series of assertions which tries to push it to one side. So I guess, rather naively maybe, I imagined when we began this work that there would be a willingness to refine health policy in the light of the biosocial data we produced. Well, as you can see, the reality is rather different. In fact, our work fueled a debate in the House of Lords. And during that debate, the Earl of Sandwich, great name, imagine being called the Earl of Sandwich, he quoted from an article that we published in The Lancet suggesting that mass drug administration was an ineffective strategy for controlling NTDs. And he went on to say, so what is the British government going to do about supporting a policy that manifestly doesn't work? And this debate was then followed a few weeks later by an invitation for us to give evidence to the all-party parliamentary group on malaria and NTDs. But a week after our presentation, we received a letter from the Ugandan Ministry of Health, copied to the Vice-Chancellor of Brunel University, where I was working at the time, uh, and the director of the LSE, where Tim is working, saying that unless we could prove that we had ethical clearance, 
from our universities, because they knew we had ethical clearance from the Ugandan Ministry of Health, they would make us persona non grata. As the Times Higher put it, we had become hard to swallow. <laughs> the unwanted side effects of mass drug administration. The swift response by the Ugandan Ministry of Health to the debate in the House of Lords is rather interesting. It not only highlights the intense pressures practitioners and academics face when they receive multi-million pound grants from donors, but also that these kinds of pressures can profoundly shape the way in which evidence is used and not used and in this instance, I think, with counterproductive consequences. So to put it another way, and to build on James Ferguson's anti-politics thesis, the response reveals how advocates of mass treatment, some of whom are very senior professors in international schools of public health, were willing to use their authority to set aside discomforting data and to continue to promote a highly technical and context-free approach which was manifestly failing. And what they did was to seize the moral high ground and by presenting our workers unethical and negligent, they did what they could to tap into a very pervasive anti-political discourse for their own highly strategic purposes. So are there any indications to suggest that the situation is different in other areas of global health? And if so, why? Well, let us take a look at Ebola. As some of you know, Ebola broke out in Meliandu, a small village near Gwakadu in eastern Guinea in December 2013. The virus subsequently spread across Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. Initially, it seemed as a series of localised outbreaks, which appeared to be contained. But over a period of about six months, it emerged that the situation was anything but contained. These kinds of awful images flashed onto our screen. District hospitals, lacking the resources and personnel to respond effectively, were quickly overwhelmed. Indeed, large numbers of health workers were falling ill themselves as they struggled to assist their patients. In August 2014, the World Health Organization declared the outbreak of Ebola to be a public health emergency of international concern. But by this time, there was actual in widespread international panic. Some of the early modelling on the disease undoubtedly fueled this anxiety. The Centre for Disease Control in Atlanta, for example, predicted in September 2014 that there would be more than a million cases of Ebola by December 2014. Apparently someone got in a muddle about arithmetic means and geometric means, and by the time they realised the money had already been mobilised. So the situation was perceived by external actors to be so grave and such a considerable threat to health and global health and security 
but the UN Security Council passed several resolutions. So they stated that the outbreak is undermining the stability of the most affected countries and unless contained may lead to further instances of civil unrest, social tensions and the deterioration of the political and security climate. And the resolution went on to state, the unprecedented extent of the Ebola outbreak in Africa constitutes a threat to international peace and security. These resolutions were very important. They paved the way for a highly militarized response with literally billions of dollars being thrown at the problem. The precise nature of the response varied from one country to another. In Sierra Leone, for example, the Minister of Defense was appointed the director of the National Ebola Response Center, pushing out the Minister of Health. And the Sierra Leonean Armed Forces played a pivotal role coordinating the response. A clear command and control system was put in place, with additional support, I might add, from the UK military. <coughs> this, slide on, uh, this slide here, for example, you can see on the left, shows actually some of my um, LSHTM colleagues, Peter Piot, Heidi Larson, and Brian Greenwood, at an academic meeting attended, as you can see, by military officers. While the picture on the right uh, publicly promotes the work of the Sierra Leonean armed forces. In Liberia, the situation was rather different. The Minister of Health and Social Welfare directed the national response, but the military was still very influential, albeit in a more supportive way. So as the crisis unfolded, the governments deployed their armies to help impose roadblocks, assist with lockdowns, identify new cases, control access to hospitals and Ebola treatment centers, and in the case of Liberia, ensure bodies uh, were cremated rather than buried. In addition, 5,000 military personnel were deployed by China, Canada, France, Germany, UK, and the USA. So it's against that backdrop that I found myself in the rather unusual position of seeing global health policy being made in front of my eyes. As you know, I work at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. The director of the London School, Peter Piot, co-discovered the Ebola virus in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1976. He was all too familiar with the challenges of responding to global health crises, having been executive director of the UN program on HIV AIDS for 15 years from 1994. So during the Ebola outbreak, he used to call regular cabinet-style meetings in his office, providing weekly updates and developing LSHTM's own response which included sending a significant number of clinically trained staff to the region. <coughs> These meetings were often attended by staff from NGOs such as MSF, as well as UK DFID. And it was clear from these meetings and the growing publicity being given to Ebola in the media 
that conventional containment strategies used in public health were failing. The biomedical cupboard was virtually empty. So it was in this context that I worked with others to develop the Ebola Response Anthropology Platform. Often, I might add, uh, turning over in my, my mind a comment Jeff once made in the 1980s. No intervention is often better than the interventions on offer. The platform was very much a collective effort involving input from my colleagues, Fred Martineau and Claire Chandler, as well as a number of other uh, anthropologists, including Melissa Leach and Annie Wilkinson at IGS, Anne Kelly, who was at Exeter, is now at King's, um, James Fairhead, and Paul Richards and Esther Makua at Najala University in Sierra Leone. Some of us have done long-term ethnographic research in Sierra Leone, while others had expertise in medical anthropology. But together, we were united in our desire to draw on our different kinds of expertise to help contain and respond more appropriately to the outbreak. Of course, we were not alone. There were many other initiatives, notably the American Anthropological Association's Emergency Ebola Anthropology Initiative, and there was a third network which was designed to support Francophone scholars working in Francophone countries. And there were a considerable number of anthropologists who were actually employed by international agencies to work for them, including, of course, Juliet Bedford, a former DPhil student here in Oxford who worked for UN Mir, as well as Julianne Onoko and Sylvain Fay, both of whom did remarkable work in Guinea. So it was actually an extraordinary moment because I think never before have large numbers of anthropologists come together and worked at such speed and so collaboratively. Our phones, emails, WhatsApp messages, they pinged through the night. Of course, anthropologists have worked on outbreaks before, but it was the scale of the response and the fact that we were able to engage in such varied ways and at so many levels both internationally, nationally, and locally, that was so different. Let me give you a few examples. Within days of establishing the platform, we developed an online resource portal. We're enabling practitioners and researchers to access background information about the socio-cultural, uh, historical, economic, and political dimensions of Ebola. We were invited to the Ministry of Defence to advise key figures on the social and political issues they needed to consider before sending hundreds of military personnel on HMS Argus to Freetown. The entire steering committee of the platform was co-opted by the UK Scientific and Advisory Group for Emergencies to form what they called Anthropology and Social Sciences Subgroup. And I co-chaired those meetings with Chris Whitty, DFID's chief medical officer at the time. And as a group, we discussed how the UK government could support the development of an appropriate and more effective strategy in Sierra Leone. Numerous briefings were requested by WHO uh, and, and written for them about tackling complex issues such as culturally acceptable, safe and dignified burials, 
how to facilitate community engagement was another issue they, they sought advice on. And how to think through the ethical issues of introducing and trialling a vaccine that had not been tested at scale before. And we did what we could to challenge some of the myths circulating in the media, including misplaced assumptions embedded in public health, that so-called risky behaviour is based on ignorance and misinformation, which can easily be corrected by providing the right kind of information. And you all know that's hopeless, but you know, it was still uh, an activity which was worthy of doing. So our work required thinking carefully about both the biological and the social dimensions of Ebola. From a biological perspective, we were well aware that it was a viral hemorrhagic fever, that the virus passed from wild animals to people, uh, that once zoonotic transmission had occurred, it can spread very quickly from human to human, usually through contact with bodily fluids such as vomit, sweat, blood, breast milk, semen. Symptoms include uh, diarrhea, vomiting, high fever, and hemorrhagic bleeding. And in the early days of infection, the symptoms can be easily confused with malaria and typhoid. And the fatality rate in the, in the beginning of the outbreak was horrendously high, with estimates ranging up to 70, 80, in some cases 90%. But there was also quite a lot that was not known. For example, there was quite a lot of conjecture about the etiology of the disease, the routes of transmission, and the way in which those who are infected but asymptomatic may or may not be contributing to transmission. <coughs> A challenge for the platform then was how to identify at speed uh, the social and political issues, how they, were, how they were actually interacting with the biology of the virus and how to develop alternative framings enabling social, political and economic issues which might otherwise be overlooked by the policymakers and practitioners to be foregrounded. Let me give you an example. In the early days of the outbreak, many international agencies were adamant that patients should attend Ebola treatment units for treatment. These were often significant distances from many of the villages affected by Ebola, and they were mainly understood, frankly, to be little more than death camps. Recognising from the outset that caring for the sick and the dying is intensely social, platform members argued for places to be established which were closer to home, more welcoming and locally managed. The idea was actually acted upon with the UK government playing a major role in helping to establish community care centres across the country. But there were some arguments we didn't win, notably the importance of supporting home care. We tried as hard as we could to suggest that a lot of effort should be put into providing information alongside equipment, gloves, buckets, chlorine, which would surely enable those who were doing home care to do it more safely. But the argument fell on deaf ears 
as it was thought that it would be impossible to provide the necessary training, training and equipment to effective households at a sufficient scale to interrupt transmission. And they were worried too that supporting home care would dissuade people from seeking formal care. So, looking back on it, I would say we were helpful in some ways and not so helpful in other ways. But, of course, some huge questions remain unanswered. Why, for example, were some areas of Sierra Leone more affected by Ebola than others? And if Ebola was on the wane in Kenema district, for example, before the international response had even arrived... Does that mean the external international assessments played a more mar marginal role than some donors and actors would have us believe? Some of you will know the work of Paul Richards. He's argued uh, that local people made their own empirical observations of the unfolding of the Ebola outbreak. They learned, if you like, how to be epidemiologists and how to find local strategies that would enable them to interrupt transmission. And at the same time, he suggests responders learnt to engage with the social and political context in which they were working, and they started to think like villagers. It's a very, very compelling <coughs> argument, and it's spelled out in a very magnificent book. However, as Paul would be the first to acknowledge, it begs the question about why some chieftains struggled to contain Ebola while others did not. So I'm now working with Paul uh, and a number of his colleagues at Najala University, as well as other colleagues at the London School of Hygiene, notably Susanna Mayhew, Dina Balabanova and Joanna Hainfeld, to try and look at this issue in more depth. What we're trying to do is uh, to map out what is reported to have happened at a national and district level, and then by following particular known chains of transmission and talking to a diverse array of people, try and work out what actually happened rather than what's in the official documents. So this slide is a little bit under construction because the work is ongoing as I speak. But it gives you an idea. We've got a timeline and then trying to think, well, when were the burial teams actually appointed? How many were there? Uh, when? Where did they work? What did they do? How effective was it? When was the Ebola treatment unit actually opened? And how many beds were there? And how many people actually came? And how many holding centres were there? And when were they replaced by the community care centres? Where were the community care centres actually located? And when they opened, did people come and what happened? And an important, really important issue emerging from this work is how public authority shaped and is shaped by Ebola. So while we know that the response to Ebola was really militarised, it's much less clear what this actually looked like in practice. What kind of relationships existed between the military, the police, and the paramount chiefs? Are there any instances in which paramount chiefs, for example, were able to use the outbreak to reassert their rather fragile power and authority? 
And what implications did this have for the transmission of Ebola? How easy or how frequent was it to find ways to dodge the system? Was it possible, for example, to buy passes or use military connections to ensure someone um, to, to help you get through a roadblock or hide a body in the back of a boot or something like that? So it's this kind of fine-grained data that we're trying now to elicit. And while this work is still very much ongoing, it's evident that social relationships played a crucial role. So let me just very briefly take the case of a place called uh, Bangatok. It's a small town of 8,000 people <coughs> on, in Moyamba chiefdom. The town's located by an estuary and has a naval base there. And during the Ebola outbreak, 30 people or so died. And a further 30 women and children died in a boat. They were fleeing the town during the lockdown and the boat capsized. The town was actually untouched by the international response. There's a peripheral health unit there. The very name says it all, doesn't it? Peripheral health unit. Um, and during the outbreak, the staff there had no gloves, let alone uh, personal protective equipment. They were reliant on information being communicated by phone from the district headquarters as no one had any access to the internet. Their knowledge of Ebola was minimal and there were no diagnostic facilities anyway, so they were unable to distinguish between what might be Ebola and what might be malaria or typhoid. So when Ebola came to the town, almost certainly because of a teenage girl was smuggled through roadblocks in the boot of a car, panic reigned. The house with the teenage girl, now seriously ill with Ebola, was quarantined, and many of the people in the house and a neighbouring house were subsequently sent to a holding centre and then to district hospitals in Bow and Kenema. At least 10 of them died. And one of the people who sadly died was a young woman with a small baby. And when she realised she was falling ill, she rang her mother, who was living nearby, and asked her to come and take the baby. With the house in quarantine and fearful of being seen, the mother sent a young girl in the middle of the night to duck the tape and retrieve the child. The baby subsequently developed symptoms of Ebola, and when an ambulance eventually appeared in the town, she passed the infected baby back to her daughter. The daughter and the child entered the ambulance together, and the grandmother, essentially convinced that she too had Ebola, tried her best to persuade the ambulance driver to take her too. But he refused. He said, you don't have any signs or symptoms of Ebola. A week later, she developed signs of Ebola. By this time, she'd heard that her daughter and grandchild had died at the holding centre, and she was determined not to go there herself. Instead, she rang another daughter who lived in Freetown, and, as it turned out, was married to a military officer. So her son-in-law arranged for a pass to be given to her so that she could travel to a hospital on the outskirts of Freetown. By this point, she had a raging temperature, so she still had to somehow get through the roadblock. So she consumed vast quantities of paracetamol and brought the feeder down and got to this district hospital. 
And when she got there, they said, but you don't have a temperature. You look fine. There's no indication that you're ill. Go away. So they sent her away, and then she went away, and then she thought, this is mad. I've got to go back. And eventually they agreed that they would put her under observation. She was diagnosed with Ebola, and she was successfully treated. Now, there are many, many aspects of this account which are actually totally tragic. But it illustrates, I hope, the kind of issues we need now to actually grapple with to get a fuller picture of what actually happened. And that only then will it be possible to unravel the complex interrelationships between the social, the biological, and the political dimensions of Ebola. So I'm just going to sum up a little bit now. This talk has reflected on research I've done on neglected tropical diseases in Sudan, Uganda, and Tanzania, and more recent work on Ebola in West Africa. My early work on schistosomiasis in Sudan was rather solitary. I was a PhD student with a grounding in human sciences, using ethnographically informed ways of thinking to collect and analyse biomedical and observational data. Subsequent work on NTDs in Uganda and Tanzania involved doing social research with another anthropologist, the lovely Tim. This time, with the intention of analysing our findings in relation to data produced by colleagues specialising in parasitology and vector biology. Sadly, it didn't work out in the way anticipated. The changing nature of global health funding and the increased financial challenges facing higher educational institutions meant that the pressures mounted, not just to avoid discussing insights emerging from social research, but to proactively silence them. The situation is, however, changing, and it's changing quite fast. In June 2017, the Ugandan parliament discussed the fact that the National Control Programme for Schistosomiasis is failing, noting that the levels of infection are now as high as they were more than ten, more before mass drug administration began more than 10 years ago. Our colleagues in the Ministry of Health have since contacted us, and they now take the view that a biosocial approach is perhaps the only way to understand and respond to the complex issues arising. The work on Ebola is promising in a rather different way. It's revealed how much can be achieved when anthropologists come together and work collaboratively with biomedical practitioners and policymakers on equal terms. This was possible partly because of the political and medical context in which Ebola was unfolding, but also because of the foresight of key leaders in the field, including Peter Piot and Chris Whitty, both of whom, having lived through the HIV-AIDS pandemic and witnessed the failure of so many behavioural change programmes, recognised that public health is actually a social practice. And it was also obviously hugely uh, helpful that there were just so many anthropologists who were around and willing to step up to the plate. So I think whatever way one turns, it seems to me that biosocial approaches are here to stay. And for that, 
we should surely be grateful to Jeff Harrison, who did so much to lay the foundation for such an approach. There's just one very, very final thing I want to say. At Jeff's 90th birthday last June, Vernon Reynolds and Nick Matty-Taylor made two very lovely speeches about life within and beyond Oxford. Jeff clearly appreciated their comments, but he also said, in a characteristically profound way, you've forgotten one thing. Luck. It's not for me to comment on the luck that Jeff did or did not have, but I can certainly comment on my own. Luck to have stumbled into human sciences. Luck to have had Jeff as a PhD supervisor. And maybe even a bit of luck to be here today. Thank you.